Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls, and it was like, you'll have to give us a ride. You can't fill us, though. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. You know, the head in the fishbowl. This doesn't look right. They got close enough where he said he could see. Hey guys, welcome back to Conspiro Normal. It's your host, Adam. We're back after talking about Bigfoot last week. And over here is Rob. Hello, everybody. He's uh, abandoned the fort as as usual. Yeah, I'm we, feeling, uh, feeling we, great we, today, by the way. What's that? I'm feeling great today. You feel great today? Yeah, yeah. You get over the hangover? No. <laughs> but you, get, you got a little hair of the dog, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm feeling much better. And uh, 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 Luke, how you doing? Oh, well, there is no Luke. I don't think he exists anymore. He might have faded out of existence. Maybe he was a dream that we had. Yeah, he was only meant for our plane for so long. I'm, I'm going to go back and listen to the archives, and he's not even going to be in it. <laughs> it's going to be like a Mandela effect kind of thing, right? That's, that's what's going to happen. Uh, guys, we were supposed to have tonight Robbie Graham, but he is not going to be here on this show. He'll be on the next episode. He had a family emergency that he had to tend to. So Greg Bishop was kind enough to step in pretty much at the last minute. I sent him a message at about, well, probably like 9 or like 8.30 for him this morning. And he responded to me and said he would come on. So he's going to be on with Joshua Cutchin. We've already recorded that interview, so it's in the past for us. And uh, we had some we had some interesting fun. We had another uh, Comcast problem. 
You know, thank you so much, Comcast. They're reliable, except for on Sundays when we do the podcast. Yeah, they're not exactly, reliable at all. Exactly. When, when you're sitting there playing silly little games, that's when they're up. But right. you know, when you're actually doing something constructive and important, that's when they decide to go down. So, but in the meantime, guys, we have another guest on that's going to give us an update on a film, the uh, film called The Searchers. And that is Randy Benson. Randy, welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Hey guys, good to good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, Absolutely. sir. Um, now the last time we had you on, I don't think that the film had premiered yet. Is that true? Um, it had show it it showed originally in um, in Dallas last year. It was a. Uh, it wasn't quite the final draft. So, yeah, since I've spoken to you last, it's it's gone to a couple festivals and um, and done pretty well. And I'm uh, had a number of other screenings. So, just kind of getting it out. Yeah, where have you where have you screened uh, screened it uh, thus far? Well, it screened. Its festival debut was in San Francisco at the uh, Tiburon International Film Festival, and yeah, that that went great. It was a terrific turnout, and uh, even on it was game one of the uh, the playoffs, and Gold Golden State was playing at home. It was Easter Sunday, and it was raining, and we still had a full house. So. Oh, nice! Very psyched about that. And uh, the film won the Orson Welles Award. Oh, okay. Was I don't know if it's because I've gained weight recently or (laughs) or what, but huge, huge honor, you know. Well, um, since I grew my beard, people say that I look like Orson Welles now, so. I can uh, I can relate to that. Um, I've also started smoking cigars with Rob, and uh, I think it adds to the whole Orson Wellesness. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what's your uh, not to get into too much of a tangent, but what's your favorite Orson Welles film? Oh, um, the Magnificent Ambersons. I have never seen it. Oh, it's one of the classics. I mean, I love I love them all, and I love Citizen Kane. And it's probably the yeah. the greatest film of all time, but Magnificent Ambersons is has just some amazing camera work, and uh, and it's just such a strange story. Yeah, so I highly recommend um, a that, good three hours. Yeah, that's one. It's three hours long. Wow, that's one I've always meant to see, but I've never, I've never gotten around to it. I think that's the one right after Citizen Kane, right? I think so. And you know, to be honest, I probably would never have watched it if I hadn't been forced to in film school. So that was one of the good things about about going to a, a school that forces you to watch movies. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know. Um, How's, how has the searchers been received? Um, how's the document been received generally by the public, the people that have seen well, it and some of the reviews that you've gotten? Yeah. Well, you know, there's, um, reviews from inside the, uh, the community and, uh, they're usually pretty good. And, um, in fact, 
all the reviews thus far have been very good. Um, it offers a different perspective than mo- what most uh, most researchers have never been to kind of the the um, the very famous researchers' homes. They've never seen you know them working at home in their work in their home environment. Um, and people and most people have never heard them talk about themselves, how they got got into the case, why they even bothered mm-hmm. at the very beginning and what their lives have been like throughout. So I think the research community has really enjoyed that and enjoyed seeing uh, seeing them portrayed in the media honestly rather than just as um you know conspiracy nuts yeah let me let me say to anybody that uh, has not listened to the previous show that we did with you this is about kennedy assassination researchers so i just want to make that clear because anybody doesn't know what we're talking about <laughs> we've oh, been yeah. we've been on our ufo kick the last few days so we've the last few shows we went to um we just got back from roswell a couple of weeks ago. So that's a whole other conspiracy theory there. But yeah, I wish I'd been on that trip with you guys. Oh yeah. It was, it was something. It was something. What's uh what of the people that you, that you interview in the film, what have some of them, how have they received it? How, what have they thought about, uh, about the film? Are they generally happy with it? Have you gotten any kind of criticism from them? Well, the, um, Everyone has been extremely happy, and um, you know, a couple people it brought them to tears, and mm. um, you know, Robert Groden just looked at me and said, "Thank you," and uh, um, and I have a great, great, great quote from him um, where he says, "I don't, I don't know if this is true, but I." It's a quote from him, and I'll take it. He said, uh, this is the one one of the most important films ever done on the case. And wow. I think he th- felt that just because it, it humanizes people who have been marginalized, you know? Yeah. Um, but, um, but for me, one of the greatest, greatest things while I've been screening it is the the non-research community, just the general public. Um, I had a, it showed in Orlando at the, um, international free thought film festival. And there was a professor from a major Florida university, Florida state. Um, and, uh, he was a history professor and he, he came up to me afterwards and, you know, the greatest compliments someone like me can get really from a, from someone out, outside the community is, he said, um, you've changed the way I will teach my course from now on. Wow. And that's kind of what, what our goal is. You know, we, as a filmmaker, I want to broaden the, broaden the conversation, give people a different perspective on something they felt they already knew about. And, uh, I think once people see the film, they, uh, they really like it for what it is. I'm not, I try not to be 
pedantic or over the top. I just let let people tell their stories, or I try to. And if you do that, you know, people can't argue with people who are just telling their stories. Yeah, that's true. You know? That's that is a that also is a good endorsement as well that somebody's going to come up to you and say that that changes how they how they teach their class. Did he go into any kind of detail onto what he might do? Well, uh, teaching he, that class. Yeah, and this is a common theme with every academic. I showed it in Chapel Hill, and uh, there were a number of people, number of professors from the poli sci department and the history department. And a common theme was that they just, they didn't know about the JFK Records Act. They didn't know about the six and a half million pages that had been released or that the, that all the, all of the documents have to be released by October 26th of this year. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that part. When you told me that in our interview, uh, that was news to me. I had no clue about that. Yeah, it's it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and they were like, I had no idea the case was still alive. And I was like, yeah, it's very much alive. And, you know, you can't you, – they think this is a historical event that's been settled. But, you know, history can't be settled unless all the information is available. And this is one of those – those cases where it's just been withheld. It's interesting how things get buried and how much people forget over the passage of time and just don't think of it anymore or any longer. Yeah. And so I think, I think the work you guys do and, um, and other filmmakers and all the researchers and writers, it's, uh, you know, I personally think it's it's doubly critical that we just keep plugging away, you know, because when people learn about it, like in in my screenings, you know, it's not on TV, it's one on one. And when people see it, they are open to new information. And I think that's one thing that that. Like I said, y'all are doing great, and other writers and filmmakers, when people see it and hear the true information, you know, the documented information, they are open to to changing their preconceptions, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, do you feel like that you've gotten any resistance from... I would say the intelligence community or anything like that. Have you gotten anything weird that's happened to you since you put this out? Well, kind of. Um, I, uh, I've over the years I've shown um, works in progress, you know, little scenes or sequences to, to uh, different college classes or, um, you know, my, uh, coworkers here. And I had one, one screening and it was just one of the many little weird things that have happened. I had a screening in DC 
and uh, a little Q&A. And I noticed these guys in the back. And, uh, you know, they were in their suits. And, you know, it was D.C. And they were kind of stoic and didn't chime in. And they weren't really talking to anyone. And for some reason, they just kind of stood out. I didn't, you know, you don't think about these things really. But then I had a work in progress in Boone, North Carolina, up in the mountains. And uh, and there were these guys sitting, you know, and it's a hippie town. So anyone who's not in flip-flops and a, you know, Birkenstocks and a headband, <laughs> you kind of stick out. And there were those those two guys were sitting in the crowd, you know, right dead square in the middle. And at first I didn't realize, I didn't, I just thought, oh, these guys are just, they must, they must be local business men or, or something. And then it hit me. I just, it hit me that those were the same guys. Hmm. So I don't know. I've never been approached. I've never been yeah. intimidated or any of that, but that, that was really strange. I, and you know, and there are other little things like, um, um, every now and then I'll get books sent to me and, uh, and you know, from Amazon It's happened to me after Dallas and last year. I got home and um, Abraham Zabruder's granddaughter wrote a book on um, on the film, and there was no packing slip, there was no gift receipt, there was no no identifying anything on the box. And when I called Amazon up, they couldn't; they needed an order number to see who sent it to me. And, uh, other, I, I use under fair use, a lot of the Zapruder film, um, within context. And as you know, that's been hotly contested. The, um, the sixth floor museum has gone after other filmmakers for using it. Um, my, my lawyers and, uh, um, I'm located, I teach at Duke university. So, Oh really? Okay. Duke, Duke law has, has, uh, really come through and they've, they've, uh, advised me that, no, this is the clearest fair, fair use of all. Sure. And so I used it in, it's in my film and after it screened in Dallas, um, and I'm sure there were there were representatives from the sixth floor at the screening. When I got home, the book was just, was waiting for me. And, uh, you know, I know my, my home address, people's home addresses are easy to find, but it's not red. Mine isn't readily available. And so for, uh, something to arrive that didn't have any identifiers, a lot of people in the research community just felt that that was, you know, someone who had a vested interest in the Zapruder film just sending me a little message. 
Um, That's weird. You know, just weird stuff like that. So it's, but the biggest thing for me is um, I had a previous film that that got distribution and it, you know, I was lucky that it, it won a lot of awards and um, I sold the domestic rights and the foreign rights and it did really well. And the, uh, the director of acquisitions for the uh, domestic broadcaster wanted to know what I was working on next. And uh, she was interested in partnering again. And, you know, as a struggling filmmaker, that's like a dream, right? You to have money to actually develop your own projects. That's like, that'd be great. But when I told him what I was working on, just crickets, no one was interested. Mm. So, um, and as a, I know every writer out there has dealt with that. Every, uh, every podcaster has dealt with that. Um, but it was surprising to me because I'd already, I felt I'd established that I could already make a product that would make them money, that they would feel that they could make money on. But it was a subject matter that they just didn't want to deal with. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a stigma there related to the subject matter and also related to the person that's interested in it? Yes, without a doubt. Um. But I think it's, I think it's a little more. I think there is that, but I think it's it's a little more um, that they cool. just don't. I think broadcasters and mainstream journalists they feel that the subject is a non-starter. That if they make if they make something and do research and they find out that it's inconsistent with the accepted theory then they will be pilloried by their peers and that's why most of the stuff you see on mainstream tv is it's it might have nuanced differences and from the official story but in the end they always go back to the warren commission was right and it Mm -hmm. was a lone nut um i haven't watched much mainstream television So I, you know, I am of course aware that it is 2017 and that this, not only do we have this release of these files as we discussed last time, but it's also the hundredth anniversary of JFK's birth of his birth. Yeah. Our hundredth birthday. And so what kind of, what kind of material is out there on television right now? I mean, what are, what are we seeing? Um, How is that? is a lot of it kind of just still, you know, reinforcing the old narrative. Yeah, definitely. There was a, there was a series on one of the discovery networks on Oswald and it was like a five point, a five episode series. And it was critic and it was parroting the, the lone nut theory. Um, but it was so unpopular and that that after the second episode it stopped airing hmm. um, and that might be an indication that people are 
um, know enough not to not to accept it. That if it's if it's just parroting the old line, they just yeah. won't watch. Yeah, because it's the same old story that we've heard a billion times. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing I'm curious about what uh, I talked about this with uh, John Tenney and Craig Ciccone, but uh, um, Stephen King's eleven twenty two sixty three. Did you see that miniseries? You know, I was gonna watch it, but out of protest, I just couldn't. <laughs> uh, I gotcha. I gotcha. I did. I didn't. I yeah. Heard it was a well made. It, it's really interesting. I mean, he's a great, great writer. Yeah, it it is a good it is a good miniseries. It's interesting, of course. You know, it has that fantastical element of time travel. Yeah, um, but there's just it just it still parrots the official line that Oswald did it, and it was Oswald alone. You know, and I really and and you think for a good portion of the of the of the series, you think that he's going to the conspiracy angle. So yeah, I, I I'm kind of surprised <laughs> that it that it did that it reinforced the the narrative. Um, do you think that this film is going to have any bearing on? how these files are going to be released. Do you think that you're getting enough recognition now that that might have some kind of effect on them? Well, no, I don't think it'll have an effect on the files being released. Um, you know, at this point it's all up to, it's all up to Trump. He's the only person that could stop the release. Um, and right now the, the research community is kind of torn on what he's going to do. Um, but um, I do know that when my when my film gets seen, it 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 makes people rethink their preconceptions. Yeah. And I mean, the, the common thing is, I just I didn't know that. Um, and so you know, people are like, there's a great line in the movie JFK: "People's are, people are suckers for the truth." And uh, when they, you know, the documents are undeniable. That's the government's own, um, their own documents. And so it's, you know, that when you see the truth, people truly are suckers for it. Um, I think if my film could get wider distribution, I think it, it would really help change people's Mm-hmm. perspective mm-hmm. you know and you know it's while i think the well i think the the jfk assassination is really really important you know obviously i do but it's the lessons we learn from it for events that have recently happened or will happen in the future that we have to learn from it and uh and we can't do that unless people know the true facts of it. The course of America changed on that day. And to not know that and have that information by which to make decisions um, 
that's how democracies fall, you know? Yep. And, uh, you know, John Judge has a great, great line in the, in my film, um, where he says, uh, um, the only, if you want your democracy back, you have to solve the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. There's a lot of roots there. I think there's a lot of things that go back to that. How do you think the current political climate is influencing some of these, some of these aspects right now about the Kennedy assassination, especially, you know, the year that we're in and what's going on. Yeah. Um, well, there are a lot of different, different takes on it. Um, the biggest, biggest for me in the last six months, I've heard the, the term, the deep state yeah. referred to in mainstream media more than I ever have yeah. in almost years of being involved. And that's what I said. I've been saying that too. Like I've heard that term for a while now, and then all of a sudden here it is all over the place. You, can you believe that? Yeah, that's pretty crazy. And so people are, and I, I think people are clued in that there's something bigger. There are bigger things at work that people just aren't necessarily aware of. And I, and I think that that's one of the things that inspired people to throw out the established institutions, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that was, that was clearly at play with Sanders and Trump, you know, they wanted, it was, it was their outsider. They're bucking the trend of the, uh, of the insiders that really propelled them um, throughout those elections. But then there's other little things like uh, other little big things like, uh, you know, Roger Stone had, has written on the Kennedy assassination and he's a, he's an advisor to Trump. Yeah. So how, how that will affect um, document release or how mainstream media covers the documents, um, we'll have to see. You know, he's he's a polarizing figure, and um, from outside the research community and inside the research community. So he, that's brought a, a whole nother a whole nother level of uh, complication to understanding how this case is going to move forward in the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Agreed. Uh, well, Randy, tell people where they can get the, f- where they can get the film, uh, where it's available. Yeah. Well, thanks. It's, uh, you can access the film through my website, the searchersfilm.com, and it's available on Amazon and on Vimeo on demand. Just go to either of those and type in the searchers. And uh, I have DVDs for purchase as well as some other some other items. Um, I've created a box set of the raw uncut interviews with all the researchers. Oh, nice. And I've gotten a lot of good feedback that that's it's a good resource for you know uh, younger researchers and 
and people who have been interested in, you know, Josiah Thompson and Vince Salandria and um, John Judge, all those guys. Um, but I'm also planning screenings around the country. So I have one in Providence in, in September, and those details will be on my site. And another one here in the uh, Durham, Raleigh, Chapel Hill area of North Carolina okay. in a few weeks. So I'll have all those on my site, and I'll definitely let you know. All right. Well, excellent. Uh, Rob, is there any questions that you had? Uh, no, man. Thanks for coming back on the show, though. Yeah, I really appreciate it, guys. And I'm sorry. Sorry, um, Luke's not around from that. <laughs> there was a previous uh, show where you talked about him always asleep on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if he was back there right now. Uh, well, no, he, I think he may have uh, slept so much that he phased out of existence. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure he'll show back up. He he'll he'll show back up when we least expect it. <laughs> all, right. all right, I expect nothing less. <laughs> He's our Alfred E. Newman right now. So nice. <laughs> all right, sir. Thank you so much. Stay on the line for us, guys, and we will be right back with Joshua Cutchin and a surprise visit from Greg Bishop on Conspiranormal. <laughs> Welcome back, guys, to Conspiranormal. And I seem to say that every time, Rob, with saying all right before every word. I need to stop getting away from the, uh, start getting away from the verbal crutches. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, I hear you. <laughs> which is another you verbal back crutch. And you're horrified. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I am because I say, uh, and, you know, and, you know, and, 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 I, and I mean, and, and so, yep. and all yep. the verbal crutches. Like, well, it's like, you know, this kind of, <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I do that all the time and I just, I'm, I'm sitting. I'm sitting there listening because I listen to the podcast just to see what you know. God, there it is to see what we can make better, <laughs> and I, it just hurts me every time to listen to my voice. Does anyone just be uh, careful? Be careful about what you think about what you're saying while you're doing it. After about three or four shows, uh-huh. uh, it'll work itself out. You just have to really be cognizant of what you're saying all the time and maybe speak a little slower. I suppose. But yeah, you get excited about something or you yes. really want to say something and then you start. Uh, and uh, like, you know. Yes. Yeah. That's that's kind of how it happens. <laughs> yeah, for, for me, I'm like the master of awkward pauses, though. When I listen back, I'm just like, what, what was I thinking about for so long? <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone else? I mean, everyone here has done a podcast. So there it is again. Do you guys feel that way when you listen to your own voice or is it just me? Is this a psychological listen. thing? I can't listen to my own voice on a podcast anymore. <laughs> really? Okay. I realized a while back that yeah, I realized a while a while back that like not only did I already know what was going to be said, but it was also kind of oddly narcissistic. 
Um, so I kind of made it a point to I kind of made it a point to stop listening, which always bums me out when I'm on what you know a favorite show of mine like, like Greg's show or or you know Conspiracy Normal because it's one less show I have to listen to. It's like dang it. <laughs> sure, yeah. I can't I, listen to other shows. It's just it, it's for some reason it has nothing to do with anything except that if I listen to them, it's like oh I wish I'd asked that person that question or oh why didn't I have that person on my show or. You know, it just so many things that, that get at my competitive nature that I, I can't. I almost can never listen to other podcasts. I can, I listen to mine just to do the editing, and then I never listen to it again. Huh? I guess I listen to mine just to see what I can do better. I suppose. I guess that's the only reason. The only reason that I listen to it, and also too, to see what a fine job my producer has done here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And he does do a fine job. I wish I had a producer, but yeah, like most people, I'm producer, host, engineer, um, uh, web person, and everything. And that's been like that since the beginning. I when I started it, uh, I don't know how many years ago. Well, the, uh, the podcasting part, 2007 or eight or something like that. But I've been I've been wow. recording my shows since 1997. Wow, on cassettes. <laughs> hey hey that that increases that increases your hipster cred by a lot my friend this i didn't do it to be a hipster it's because we didn't have digital recorders and we didn't have uh whatchamacallit uh, uh i had them i have a whole bunch of discs too like cds that i recorded for probably four or five years it's about 200 of those and then i got about another hundred or so or more cassettes sitting in a in a, in a rack um underneath my dresser <laughs> waiting to be uh digitized i've done it to a few of them Wow. This is where I did that smart aleck, uh, smart aleck young person thing until I was 12. What? <laughs> what is? Uh, I, I said this is where I do the smart aleck young person thing until you that I was 12 in 1990. Oh, yes. Uh, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. Rub, rub it in, Josh. <laughs> I was 21. Okay. I'm, 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 only, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm only getting, uh, what's that? Uh, What's the word called? Uh, senior prejudice in a few places. I went to a restaurant and the, obviously at a ton of tables. He said, we're not going to have a t- table till for like four hours. Like You've got like 15 tables. <laughs> so uh, I was like, are, are they reserved? Or it's like, yeah, a lot of them are reserved. It's like, you just don't want me here because I'm not dressed right or whatever. So you know what? I'm never coming back here again. Yeah. That kind of thing. Life's too so, short. Yeah. Well, you know, there's plenty of pl- other places that want my money, the little that I have. So that's fine. Well, see, I've been but doing yeah. that sort of thing since college, so <laughs> maybe I'm what, just podcasts? an old soul. Oh, just getting, you know, just just getting righteous indignation about things like that, and then swearing oh, yeah. out other places. Yeah. Oh no, that's just that's just normal. That's just normal intelligence and trying not to be rude, even though it comes out sometimes. <laughs> it, it's it's because, it's because Josh brings his tuba with him to the restaurant. That's what it is. My first uh, interview with Josh, I made him play the tuba the end of the interview it was, it was wonderful. <laughs> awesome and there will be an evening at paramania 20 um paramania 2018 provided this in new orleans there will be an evening of two of playing i promise oh excellent that's great that, that's really great request will you take requests <laughs> yeah sure why not i'm gonna say fly to the bumblebee right now uh, <laughs> okay <laughs> gotta go to the shed then <laughs> Well, guys, if you haven't noticed, um, we were supposed to have, and I think I announced it on the last show, 
We were supposed to have Robbie Graham, but he's going to be on the next show. And we were going to talk about reframing the debate, and we're still going to talk about that. But last, I had Josh coming on anyway to, to be on with Robbie. And kind of last minute this morning, I send Greg Bishop a text saying, hey, can you come on um, if possible? And I, I didn't think that I was going to get a response back, but uh, Greg did come through for us. And, you know, thank you, Greg, for, you know, coming on Conspiranormal the very almost last minute. Sure, no problem. I, I, as I told you before the show, I was, I was going to leave early and go um, flying in Santa Barbara, but it doesn't look like the conditions are good, one. And two, um, I didn't want to force, you know, I didn't want to force you to listen to me on the phone in the car, which is, doesn't really <laughs> sound that good. Yeah. Um, but I, and then I'm going to go to a lecture about, what is it? What did my wife say? Um, conjuring entities. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds good. About recently about uh, bringing the phenomenon to you personally, I wanted to see what different religious traditions say about conjuring their deities and 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 communicating with them directly and all that. It's like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear that. And then I have to race back home and do the um, coast uh, stuff. Yeah, that sounds like a good good day, and you get to start it off with us. Um, yes, Josh, I we're, I want to talk about your because that was our original plan. Uh, we were going to talk to Robbie about the book in total, and then we we're going to we wanted to talk about your essay in it. So let's go over kind of like your essay, what it's about, and kind of an interesting thing that you and I have never talked about that you mention in this essay, which is about psi research, PSI research. So let's talk about the the essay, which is titled "In for a Penny, In for a Pound: Moving Ufology Beyond Materialism." Yeah. So uh, it's sort of uh, expands on a blog post that I had done a while back, but it really was taking a look at the um, taking a look at these sort of arbitrary lines in the sand that we draw um, in ufology and trying to understand why we will engage with some aspects of high strangeness when we won't engage with others. Um, basically, the, the central conceit is. I would say I think I would be very comfortable saying practically every ufologist, even hardcore nuts and bolts people, um, any any of them who believe that there's an extraterrestrial component, will will uh, sort of endorse the idea that there is a telepathic component as well. Mm -hmm. um, you have this, you know, you have the people seeing entities and communicating with them, them to, to communicating with them without their lips moving. Um, you know, particularly in abduction research, this is sort of a, a foregone conclusion. Um, but what I don't think people realize is that literally breaks materialism. And if that breaks materialism, then why are we still wed to this idea that they are little green scientists in these metal machines coming from another planet? It just doesn't seem like you need to necessarily, um, you know, toe that line anymore. Right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, but it's so it, it, it's just looking at that and saying, well, if, if that's the case, um, you know, how much how much farther can we take that? And you find yourself stumbling into whether you like it or not, what are traditionally uh, what are traditionally regarded as magical traditions, um, because if there if consciousness does play a component, it's uh, it's it's 
it implies that something like, you know, traditional Western magic or heck not even Western, just traditional indigenous magic, um, folk traditions actually have some sort of objective reality. It's sort of like if you've ever, um, if you've ever read Alex Sakaris's collection of interviews that he published called uh, why science is wrong about, um, almost everything. It's sort of that same idea because there's this X factor that really upends this, our current way of understanding this. And if that's the case, you know, a lot of people listening to this will, will hear this and be like, Oh, he's still pushing that fairy faith hypothesis. But no, this is just me saying it can literally be anything. Now, if, if, if you take the idea that materialism is, 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 is flawed, um, then, uh, then it really can be anything. And it's interesting to me because I think that we all would agree here that science is moving away from materialism slowly, but surely. And I don't understand why ufology is, you know, and wants to hang out with the cool kids at the science table when, like, <laughs> in a couple of years, they're going to be wanting to hang out at our table, in my opinion, at least. Well, let me ask you this, um, Josh. Why do you think the ufologists are so readily, so readily, or so ready, rather, to embrace something like telepathy? Why do you think that is? Um... I mean, don't, now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that there are some ufologists out there who don't think that telepathy is is a thing. But sure. you look at people like – look at somebody like Stanton Friedman, who is, I, I think, one of the nuts and boltiest kind of guys. And he you know, has gone on the record as saying that there was you know, some sort of mind control aspect inherent in the Betty and Barney Hill case. Um, I think the reason that they are willing to embrace it is because – well, two things. First of all, abduction researchers would hardly have any cases if they threw them out. Um, so if, if, if you're, if you're banging the drum that these are aliens and these people should be believed, then you sort of by default have to believe their claims of telepathy. The other thing is that they think that somehow there is a materialist, uh, outlook that will somehow be able to explain, um, telepathy in a, in a, in a materialist, in a materialist way. It won't. It's just by definition, it it cannot be accommodated in our current scientific paradigm. The paradigm has a change to account for this, but I think some people are deluded, deluding themselves into thinking that you know it's almost like oh well someday science will be able to explain it. Yes, science will be able to explain it, but not in the way that science operates. Again, like as I'm fond of saying on on shows like this, yeah. I'm not I'm not anti scientist or anti science rather. I'm anti scientism. Um, science so, as a religion. Yeah. And this, this re- reductive idea of having one's mind made up about things. I mean, look, I, I am super critical of a lot of the stuff that's popular in ufology out there right now. Um, you know, I think that there's probably about eight to 10 different people on, uh, who are at the uh, contact in the desert who would make my skin crawl. Um, <laughs> but you know, so so I mean, there's there's something to be said for like actually engaging yourself and thinking critically about what some of the claims that people make. But at the same, at the end of the day, you can't be wed to one idea in the face of so much good research that's out there that's suggesting that things like psi effects are legitimate. Um, you know, for example, Rupert Sheldrake has done some great work. Uh, Daryl Bim has done some great work. Um, the guy from uh, University of University of Virginia. Um, his name escapes me at the moment. Uh, uh, Ian Stevenson, yeah. Um, all these yeah, he was the reincarnation 
Yeah. Guy. Yeah. His stuff is really interesting. Yeah. Where, where he was matching up um, past life memories and the traumas experienced in those, in those past lives with birthmark. You know, now, I've uh, tried to get uh, his, like his, um, it's like a student of his, that's a doctor yeah, that works in the same his, way. Yeah. yeah and I tried, I think maybe, I think so. I tried to get him on the show and he was just too busy to come on, but I would love to talk to that guy. Oh yeah, it's, even, it's even Carl Sagan said there was something to it, which was amazing to me when he said that in his last. Yeah, movie. yeah. Um, a lot of people don't realize that there is the the history's largest longitudinal survey, one of them, of cardiac arrest patients, uh, was published in the Lancet, the freaking Lancet, in two thousand one by Pim von Lommel, and it examined near death experiences in cardiac arrest patients. So it's not like there's bad science out there. If you if you think that there's bad science out there on side effects, you're just being willfully ignorant. There was a review of the of uh, reframing the debate that really took my essay to task on this. And his basic claim was, well, I haven't looked at these individual studies, but I've seen enough side studies to know that it's all bunk. And I'm like, that's just the least intellectually honest thing you could say. <laughs> um, because, like, you know, these, these do are... Do not engage, people. Josh. Do not engage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I um, not well. Maybe I did a little. Order the shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Um, but uh, it's and these are people who, by and large, are playing by the materialist playbook, and they're trying to get stuff peer reviewed, and they are um, they're inc- including you know they're, they're making their studies double blind. Are are their studies perfect? Probably not. But guess what? A lot of the studies that make it into papers nowadays are not perfect. There's a huge crisis of repeatability among scientific papers nowadays, um, which is a whole other tangent that I'm not entirely qualified to speak on, but this is something that I've heard time and again about there being sort of a, a crisis of, 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 of experimental repeatability in, in scientific studies. Um, so, you know, I, I, it, it boggles my mind that people are like, this is, this is one of the biggest stories. Like this is, come on. I think the psi thing is probably bigger than whatever the UFO thing is really. Um, because again, it does up in the apple cart in such a substantial way that all these things that we relegated to folklore and to superstition are kind of back on the table if you really look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, if it does, if it does progress some more, it's not going to upend ufology. It's basically basically going to change it in the way, sort of the way that I think might happen, where everything else changes and not ufology, and ufology is left behind because a lot of the stuff going on that people experience and what's going on with them are now um, uh, addressable by advances in other areas in science and philosophy and you know uh, psychology and all these things um, that are not ufology but impinge upon it because of the witness uh, the witness angle yeah that's an excellent point so I um a couple of different essays in here, Susan Demeter, St. Clair, and Miles Lewis. I think we sort of round out the uh, well, the, the the three of us, and eh, maybe maybe Mike Cleland, sort of round out the uh, the uh, the high strangeness caucus as it is <laughs> component in the book. Um, and you know, it's it's interesting. People have talked a lot about this book, and I think Robbie has said quite often that like if you read it and you're not off put by something. Um, then, you know, you're the most open-minded person on the planet because there's some stuff in the book that I, I wrestle with. And I'm sure that there are plenty of people who read the book and including contributors to the book who think that my essay is 
kind of the silliest thing. I mean, you know, back to back, uh, there's my essay and then there's Micah Hanks's essay. And I love Micah dearly. Mike was the first person that I really met in this field. Love Micah like a brother. Uh, but his basically is, is it really a refutation of a lot of the things that I talk about in terms of let's, you know, roll up our sleeves and get really scientific about the categorization of unexplained aerial phenomena. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely a grab bag, but I do think it's I do think that each essay is a pretty good window into the way that each of us think about these things. Um, it, it's sort of an idea of gives people an idea of how we're approaching it and sort of the axis that we have to grind. I don't think anyone really wrote anything that was out of character for for uh, for for the, their their perspective, which is it's kind of cool. So you, you can get an idea of of what is important to people and whose work you might want to you know follow a little bit more closely. You know, at this point, um, I haven't dug too deeply into Micah's essay, but I don't know if he necessarily is a refutation, just maybe as more that it exists in a different sphere than yours or some of the other writers do. I think what he would be saying is that, you know, we're just looking at things from a purely materialistic point of view, and we got to leave the kind of the woo, the woo factor out, right? Whereas you're saying... We can't really put this in a materialistic box, so we, uh, you know, the woo factor is left in because there's you can't quantify this. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a scenario where you know, a Micah's essay and my essay, you know, play well together. I think that's entirely possible. Um, but uh, I, I definitely think I'm occupying a little bit of the, on the uh, on the outer edges of of the way that this is. Yeah, let's talk about the about. Um, the section in your essay, Consciousness Paradigm, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Magic. And I actually read all this this morning, Josh, to let you know. Um, what I do like is what you say here. Um, you're talking about Gordon White. And I want to talk a little bit about Gordon White and kind of like his influence on you and kind of his influence on your thinking. But you say White describes the forces behind this non-human logic as Magonian a road from Jacques Vallée's invaluable 1969 book *Passport to Magonia*. Vallée's intercontext in context. Give me big words, Josh. Examination <laughs> of UFO phenomenon drew parallels not only to fake folklore of Northern Europe, but also to medieval French stories of airship piloting wizards from the cloud realm of Magonia. Calling these phenomena Magonian is connotation-free and handily strips away the artificial barriers which mainstream ufology has erected between accounts of extraterrestrial spirits, the Fae Folk, and Blessed Virgin Mary apparitions. I'd like you to, um, you know, amplify that a little bit, you know, explore this idea of, of saying that this is a Magonian phenomenon, that there's actually, well, we could actually start to categorize these things in some kind of substantial way. Yeah, well, t to me... Uh extraterrestrials or aliens, or even if you, you know, if you take the sort of mid 20th century UFO knots label, those all still have the same baggage that people who espouse the use of UAP instead of UFO are trying to get away from. It's so ingrained in popular culture that yeah. it's sort of, um, stymies. Um, I think it's stymies original thinking original thought actually. If you look at a lot of these things, and this has sort of been my my personal my real axe that I've been grinding uh, for a while, is that if you look at all these things um, at you know a ten thousand foot level, all of it looks strikingly similar. Um, 
by by which I mean, you know, a lot of the a lot of the modern abduction lore, a lot of the fairy folklore, a lot of the Blessed Virgin Mary apparition stuff, mm-hmm. all looks strikingly similar. A lot of ghost stuff, a lot of Bigfoot stuff too. Um, so I think that I think that by sort of using the term Magonian, I mean, like I don't think half the well, certainly the uh, certainly the the public doesn't understand that connotation therein. Um, but it, uh, it it really, I think, is a way of sort of distancing um, oneself uh, from from a lot of the sort of baggage that we've accrued over the past seventy years, and sort of the way that we the way that we think about these things. Of course, now that was that was Gordon's uh, term, Magonian, and I've really come to admire uh, Gordon, Gordon's uh, way of thinking about things. Um, so much so that sometimes I have to do, you know. Uh, a gut check and make sure that I'm not, you know, falling into some sort of cult of personality with him because I, <laughs> I, I hang, I hang on his every word, but he is, he has done quite a bit to help me contextualize. Basically what it comes down to is I was, I would roll my eyes at magic until I heard of, you know, the, the, the manner in which he described it first, which was, you know, uh, basically if, if you're using magic to try to affect an outcome in your life, it's really about um, improving the odds that you have. So that's the reason that uh, you'll find people who are magic, magical practitioners who aren't winning the lottery. Because if you have a one in two million chance of, of winning the lottery and you, through some sort of sigil work or some sort of magic, which is actually in reality a consciousness effect, um, if you can reduce those odds to one in one million that's that's great. Like you did a great job. You're probably still not going to win the lottery, though. <laughs> so it's all about sort of reading, reading uh, the lay of the land in terms of what you are most likely to achieve and where your odds are best, and sort of nudging your life through it in different ways using human consciousness. And that, to me, is the is the clearest, least. I mean, again, it's all about these lines that we draw in the sand. I think you look at some of this telepathy, uh, some of this psi academic scholarly work and you know what if that's if that's um if that's something that we can actually accept then it really does set off this domino chain and you are in the realm of talking about the efficacy of sigil work um you know you are you are really looking at other things that you know our our minds can actually the influence that our minds can actually uh, have upon reality itself yeah um greg do you have anything to add to that Oh, there we go. Uh, there's two things going on with that. Well, I was muting out in case I made a noise or something while Josh was talking. Like a snort, uh, like a snort or something. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I was I was heckling along. Yeah. It's, your, it's, your, it's, your, it's your heckle button. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's nothing in there I could heckle. The only thing is I'd expand up by saying I started out studying um, uh, occult practices sometime in the late '80s, and I was kind of pretty much through with it or through with being really interested in about 10 or 15 years later. But the upshot of the whole thing was, um, as long as you're, you know, like anything else, if your ego gets in the way, it screws everything up. Um, that, and that's true in just about anything. Uh, it's true in ufology. Uh, but the point I think of the whole exercise is if you do go into that, you know, that realm is, uh, one, uh, you have to figure out what your motivations are so to find out if they're pure enough that things will work. And two, you're not, you're not there to smite people. You're there to improve yourself and improve your odds. Um, just like, uh, uh, Josh was saying you, you do these things. And I think half of it, or maybe even more than half of it is just you getting yourself out of 
your own way to accomplish something, something that's within your reach and within your influence, not like a lottery. If you're using it to win the lottery, I think you're, you're an idiot. Um, but if you're using it to, you know, cause it's, it, you know, improving your odds by, you know, 10 times, even though you're still a million to one is not really that big of a deal. But if you're trying to, let's say, change your career or, um, feel better about yourself or, you know, heal from some of emotional problem or attain a goal like starting a business or whatever you want to call it. Um, those things, I think the, the, the magical traditions help with the West, the Western ones, um, for attaining personal goals. And, and basically, like I said, getting out of your own way, that's, that's the biggest problem. I think a lot of people have, and this is just, it's just a very old form of self-help. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, don't get me wrong, folks. It's been a long journey for me to get to the point where I feel comfortable saying that there's some sort of reality to magic. I mean, that's just, (laughs) it doesn't even, it doesn't even taste good in your mouth to say that. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the truth of the matter is, and uh, my good friend, Mike Hughes said this to me, he said, uh, magic works in practice, but not in theory. (laughs) So it's, it's the sort of thing where I feel like a lot of the people, who have who say that there's nothing to this have never tried to really seriously engage with it. Um, you know, I, 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 I would love to know how many people have done sigil work and approach it with actually with an open mind and have not had something quite striking manifest in their lives. Um, because it's, it's a, it's a, it's, there's, there's something to it. There really is. Okay. This question goes to either one of you or both. Um, there we go with the, the verbal crutches. People that are of the nuts and bolts slash ETH, as Josh puts, Josh puts it in his essay, do you think that these people, whether they believe in telepathy or not, can come out of their box and look at these different like things in folklore, like the Magonian aspect to this, to this phenomenon, and also kind of the occult aspect of this phenomenon. I think I asked a very similar question, Greg, if you remember to the panel in Roswell. I think so, yeah. I I don't, you know, it depends on the person's age, depends on their it's it's a personal thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can I can convince and cajole and and wheedle all I want with people, but if they're not, you know, if they're not open to at least listening, they they they're not going to change. It's just it's just not going to happen. So what I'm interested in, if I do, you know, try engage with people on these things, is that they at least have a little bit of an open mind about it, and and don't interrupt me while I'm talking by saying, no, 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 that's just not possible. Because if that happens, I know it's like, okay, this is not hogwash. Really my time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hogwash. I, yeah, I, I think I said. I think one of the one of the people and uh, of the old guard, so to speak, is Peter Robbins. I think he can yeah. accept a lot of this stuff. Oh yeah, he can. I mean, that and that's his mindset. He's just a very open person. The yeah, reason I had is. him on the show with us that night, which I will post tonight, as I told you, um, was that he was one of the few. Well, one, he's a good friend, and two, he's one of the few people I know that just does not take your opinions personally. She, right. He does. He truly does not care what you think, as long as you're not. Yeah, you know, as long as you're not a dick about it, and that's kind of what I uh, project on the rest of. Um, anybody I might interact with. If you, if you start off being a dick about something, then why should I even engage with you? I, I know some skeptical people and the, you know, and I love talking to them and interacting with them online, but sometimes they, they just kind of get nasty 
in fact, right out of the box. And my, my advice to them, because I'm excluded middle here, because I talked to both sides, is that, you know, if you approach somebody with a, what's the word, with a polite attitude and don't get emotionally involved and more importantly, don't embarrass them publicly, like, you know, what an idiot, you know, right, right out on a Facebook post or something, you know, if you have a problem with what they're saying, go to them personally behind the scenes and say, look, I noticed this and I, I'm not sure that I understand and or I don't agree with you. Can you explain this? Just something civilized like that. Not how could you be so stupid as to fall for this? You start out with that. Nobody's going to want to listen to you. Yep. Uh, and, and conversely, if, uh, if a UFO believer says, you know, I know this is true and there's no way you can tell me that it's not true. It's like, well, not everybody's had that experience. How can you, how can you apply that to everybody? You can't, um, with this phenomenon, you, you, not every, in fact, I, I would venture to say everybody has a different experience ever so slightly, but sometimes widely varying. And you can't, um, if somebody hasn't had the experience, you can't just pound them over a head and said, this is real because you there, there's no way for them to know this. It's not a normal thing that happens to people having a UFO experience. So there, there's problems on both sides. And I think it has, it stems from an emotion and ego and I want to be right and all that. And, and mm-hmm. nobody's immune to that, you know? Yeah. Josh, yeah. Are your thoughts on that? I don't know. I mean, like I'm, I'm a little bit cynical about the idea that someone might engage with that sort of line of thinking after being involved in sort of the nuts and boltsy thing, because I mean, there's such a tradition. It's so ingrained in society. Um, and if you want to, it's easy to live in an echo chamber where you think that's the only reputable research that's out there is this idea of, you know, government cover ups and, uh, you know, secret, uh, you know, you know, crash landing sites, things like that. It's so easy to to live in that bubble and not and not really try to push yourself and 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 try to get out of it. I think um I was just listening to the uh, the Where Did the Road Go Empty Brain Roundtable that you guys did, and I can't remember who it was. I think it was Aaron mm. that said that you know Robert Anton Wilson would deliberately read something uh, on occasion to that he that he did not agree with because he knew that was the only way to. Um, that was the only way to sort of grow in his own line of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I totally follow that. Yeah. I mean, I, I do too. Even, even as like, you know, here's the, I'm always amazed as a Christian when people don't read atheist arguments, like, I'm like, how, how do you know that you have any, any actual faith if you're just constantly surrounding you by people who constantly surrounding yourself by people who, uh, by people who are patting you on the back and who are, you know, right. who completely agree with you. It, it, it boggles my mind. Um, uh, are people that are, that are Christians that don't have friendships outside of their faith and listen to other people's point of views? Yeah, they're, they're hard. They're, they're few and far between to be mm-hmm. completely honest with you mm-hmm. in my experience, at least. Um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting to me, I have to say that perhaps there is some some degree of of hope out there, though, on balance, because the thing, believe it or not, that actually made me come around to being interested in UFOs and actually thinking that there was something substantial there is when I heard alternatives to the ETH. Like my 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 big thing was that uh, was that it didn't make sense to me that uh, that there would 
be all these varied different races coming to visit us. I mean, like aliens are visiting Earth. Okay, yeah, I can I can get behind that. But then you look at the sort of the the amount and descriptions of entities that are out there, and there's, <laughs> it's 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 so robust and. You know, I've had people before be like, no, there's not just the reptilians and the insectoids and the, <laughs> the, and, uh, and the greys and all this eating earth. And that's like the most thing I've said, especially if you look at like the whole 70 years that people have been. You forgot the Nordics. No, I think I said, I thought I said Nordics. Uh, anyway. <laughs> and, okay, one more, just Nordics. It's just like six. Just, but even so, okay, six species. What? Six species are visiting us? It just, it, it, it pushes the, uh, it pushes. Yeah. You know, my my credibility meter. Um, yeah, what was the Flatwoods monster then? You know what was Mothman? What well, you know what was all this stuff? Oh yeah, well, uh, right. Three thousand, hundred thousand different things reported all over the world throughout the uh, the history of the subject and before actually our our known history of the subject. What about all those things? You know, what about amorphous blobs of jelly and things that look like birds and <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the non-sexy cases that are just like the yeah, weirdest yeah. stuff you've ever heard of. So majority, actually, when I first started hearing ideas that tied in UFO, the UFO experience to things like consciousness, to altered states um, and honestly to, you know, to some of these uh, more spirit influenced ideas then it really that really put a crack in my in my thinking where I was like, well, that actually makes a lot to me. It makes a lot more sense. So I suspect that there are people out there who, if they encounter these ideas early enough, can be swayed. Um, but yeah. you know, it's, it's always interesting. I had a party. I had a party a couple of uh, weeks ago with a bunch of my musician friends, and they just know that I, you know, I write books about UFOs, whatever. And they were all, every one of them, astounded to find out that I wasn't, you know, an ETH guy. They're like, of course, you, you've got to believe in this stuff. No, no, you just didn't bother asking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then once people hear, you know, once people hear some of these alternative ideas, you'd be surprised how many I run into who are like, that actually makes a lot of sense. I yeah, don't know what it is, but like it, 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 something about some of these ideas are more accessible to people. I just think it's a matter of getting getting it in there, you know, right when they start becoming interested in it, as opposed to letting them sort of, you know, wallow in this ETH thing, as you know, because again, you can reinforce that, and it's easy to live in your own little bubble. Yeah, yeah I, I've I've <laughs> in the last few weeks, I've taken I've I've uh, been doing Uber rides because I've been going to the airport a lot. Every single person that I'm in there that drives that drives the Uber. Well, I ask you, oh, what do you do? And I tell them, they go, oh, what do you think about aliens? And I do just what Josh said. It's like, well, I think that's too simplistic. And then, you know, I've got some time, so I can take 10 minutes, explain to them what I'm talking about, try to boil it down. Every single one of them's like, I really want to look into that. I never thought of it in that way. I didn't even know people were thinking in that way. That's fascinating. That's a lot more interesting to me than the alien thing. Because people like something that's new, and they like something that it stimulates them intellectually. <laughs> Well, guys, Comcast decided to take an enormous dump right in the middle of our podcast. It's been a really, like, unlucky podcast day for us here. Calm crap, right? Calm crap, yeah. <laughs> they're, you, you know, they, they're only a billion-dollar company. I mean, you'd think that they would work occasionally. They, well, they, you know, they usually don't go down when you don't need it. They do. They go down when you do need it. <laughs> That's how it works. Okay, yeah. 
<laughs> they just didn't like our topic today, I guess. Yeah, that's that's our topic. <laughs> it's the men in black, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Nordics men in black. <laughs> Greg. Nordics wouldn't do that. You don't know anything about Nordics. <laughs> Nordics are the good guys. So what is wrong? Don't you know anything? We're coming to raise our vibrations. <laughs> <laughs> Namaste. Um, <laughs> Greg, let's talk about your essay for a little bit. Um, oh, okay. Let, I, let have not, <laughs> I have not. <laughs> I have not had the chance to read this. Um, so, but I think some of it is about, it's called the informational universe and the overhaul of UFO research, but I think yeah, some of, of it, a, a presumptuous title. Yeah. Some of it has, we've kind of covered with the crow creation theory. Uh, we covered it with a couple interviews with you and we covered it in Roswell too. Um, but I just kind of want to talk about kind of like the gist of your article and kind of like, um, you know what it means. You think if it changes um, your opinion of the whole phenomenon? What you mean? My my uh, does does that essay change my opinion of the phenomenon? Do you mean, or do you think it would change anybody's opinion? Oh, anybody's. Uh, I don't know. I hope so. Um, I'm just telling people what I think, and if somebody has something else to say, or even better. Um, can take it a little bit further, you know, that's great. I'm, the, the next thing I'm going to do after I finish this uh, uh, contact ebook here with uh, Go Rightly is to um, expand on the uh, co-creation hypothesis and make a whole book out of it before somebody else does it. Yeah. Um, so it's, and you know, I, I don't write books. The, the upshot of books is, yeah, I get to talk to people like you and make friends with guys like you and Josh and everybody. Um, and the, the other part of it is I'm trying to, you know, answer questions for myself or do, you know, do my own, you know, it's like putting yourself through school and the, the way you do it is you do some study and then you have to write a paper about it. Um, that's just how brains work. At least that's how mine works. Um, and I want to communicate what I'm thinking to other people and I want people to comment on it. Um, I want people to point out holes in it so that I can develop it a little bit better. That's another thing I've had problems with the, some people, some places I've spoken, they said, well, it seems like you haven't got it all, you know, 100% together yet. It's like, well, if I want to be honest, no, I haven't. I don't know if I'll ever have it 100% together. I've, I've gotten to the point where I think this is a, an important aspect. Co-creation is an important aspect of the, of the phenomenon, or at least how we look at it, that hasn't been looked at too much. Um, and that it's, if we look at how we look at things we may make some progress into finding out what we're looking at, if that makes any sense. Uh, if we know how our brains process information, how we tell stories about that information, how we act in a traumatic situation, which certainly almost all, at least close encounters are, they don't, they don't make any sense to people. They scare the crap out of them. It changes people's lives. Um, if we know what's going on with us and how we pull in that information and, and, uh, process it and how we spit it back out and how we repeat it over and over again and how it might change a little bit with repetition or who you talk to or whatever. If we can figure all that stuff out and find out what's going on, maybe we can find out what the source is. Cause in, in my talk and in the, in the essay, I actually say, I, I don't think the problem is what, what are, you know, what are UFOs or where do they come from? 
the the real question is what causes UFO reports. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. So if we could figure out what causes the report, maybe we can figure out you know get out of our own way basically and finding out what is what is the source and you know how how can we take ourselves out of the equation enough theoretically or even practically if we're talking about this ceremonial I mean that what what is what were we talking about uh, magical stuff take ourselves out of the equation enough to find out what what is causing you know us to react in the way that we do because uh like I said I think what the UFO thing is is probably 95% what we think it is and what we've made it into and what you know that that's a problem people have is like well you think we've made it all up I say I didn't say that at all I said that we're we're making we're doing our brains are doing things to try and help us deal with something that's completely nonsensical to us. We're trying to make sense of something that's nonsensical in a way that our brains can handle. Um, is that right. all we can do? I hope not. I hope we can get to the source of it and figure out what it is because it seems to take on the the uh, characteristic of um, the culture, the 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 group, uh, the people that are studying it, and, and most importantly, the individual that it happens to. Right. Uh, we talked about in uh, the interview that we did with Rosso, with you and Jack, we talked about the perspectives and whether or not a third person it would be in on, or your third party, rather, what they would actually see the encounter to be whether or not you would just see somebody just standing there in a catatonic state with maybe a ball of light or maybe not a ball of light or anything in front of them. And whether the, you know, they would have the same experience as, as, as the other person. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That, that's an idea I've had for a long time, which is if somebody's having an encounter, like if you were at Fatima and all that stuff was going on and people did see this from a distance away, but, um, if you were stand, theoretically standing on a hill somewhere, a hundred miles away or ten miles away or whatever, out of any kind of you know sort of influence, hopefully if it does if it does have to do with proximity to the phenomenon, which I think it does. Well, um, if you're standing, huh? I was, I was just gonna I was just gonna poo poo on you a little bit and say that you know Fatima was supposedly seen in North Africa, Bermuda, and California. <laughs> So. What while it was going on? Yeah, or, at the yeah, same I, I time. Think so it was uh, I, the miracle of the sun was seen maybe not that far away, but it was it was seen pretty darn far away. I feel like it was seen. I feel like it was you seen mean in, over the horizon, thousands of miles away. How could I, you see anything physically? I, I think it was. There claims that it was seen in the Vatican. I think that might prove the flat Earth, guys. <laughs> Okay, well, a bad, bad Just example. Just going to throw that out <laughs> there. I, I, I take your meaning. I take your meaning. Yeah, if somebody's having a, 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 some sort of close encounter experience less than 500 feet away, and you're, you're standing 10 miles away with a telescope looking at them, what would uh, you see? I bet you wouldn't see what, I mean, with a perfect telescope, meaning it like like you were standing right there. Um, yeah, is that, right. Are you going to see the same thing? Um, is the, is the phenomenon going to affect you the same way? Or like you said, Adam, are you just going to see a ball of light with somebody standing there in catatonic state? Or are you going to see a ship with something coming out of it and interacting with people? Well, you know, Joe Jordan talks about that. Um, so many of the cases that he's gotten, um, 
And one of the things that they've talked about, other people that have been, like the spouse has been with the husband or wife, and they, and while that person reported, yeah, I was taken up into the ship, and I was probed, and they did mental telepathic games with me, and they told me I was the chosen one to rule the planet after the apocalypse, and, the, and then they took me back. But the, the spouse reports that, Oh, their their significant other was just laying there in bed the entire time. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've I've found that uh, the case of the unwakeable sleeping partner. I have found that in Bigfoot encounters, alleged uh-huh. Bigfoot encounters, and I've also found that in uh, fairy folklore encounters. Really? Yep. Yep. So there's there's definitely something to it, Greg. I'd like to read some a uh, couple the couple of the strange cases that you talk about. And we were talking about kind of the variety before of these, of these creatures. Um, number one, driving to his job as a radio DJ in long Prairie, Minnesota on the night of October 23rd, 1965, Jerry Townsend rounded a curve in the road and was startled to come upon what looked like a 40 foot tall rocket in the middle of the road, standing on three fins Two small figures, approximately the size and shape of beer cans on two legs, waddled towards him, stopped, and put out a third leg, which they balanced on while apparently looking at him. They soon made their way back to the craft and disappeared inside the rocket. With a humming sound, it took off into the sky and disappeared. Love it. In January of 1978, a boy named Cristavo disappeared from an apartment building in Curitiba, Brazil, where he lived with his mother. She searched in vain for him all night while a strange beeping sound and other paraphysical disturbances occurred in the apartment. In the morning, an employee of a local power plant found the boy sleeping on the grounds. Cristavo told his mother that he had been taken away in a rocket quote unquote, and encountered a man and woman with no mouths. His mother said that he was emitting a strong odor and had marks on his skin that were not there previously. He said he had gone to a quote unquote yellow moon and that the beings said that they would return for him. Strange paranormal incidents continued to plague them for a period after the incident. Love it. <laughs> I love that stuff. Just the, the weirder, well, the, the better. The, yeah. Yeah, I put that weird stuff in to show in a, in a very unequivocal way, if you believe the witness, which, you know, most of the time, if somebody's going to say, the weirder it is, the more I believe them, because it's kind of like, why would you make this stuff up? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It doesn't make any logical sense. Um, and it's just, you you have to be somebody that's really good at making stuff up. Um, so I don't think they're making it up. So that that's even more interesting to me. It's It seems to argue more for, you know, what... Josh and I, and probably a lot of people in, in uh, reframing the debate are, are saying is that it is, depends on the individual quite a bit. Yep. Um, and if it does depend on the individual, how the hell can we make any, any uh, conclusions about what they're seeing in a nuts and bolts materialistic way um, when we can't even get our stories straight about what we're seeing? Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. many uh, UFO researchers would probably say, um, well, we can get it straight. You know, there's the there's a lot of uh, matching across uh, different uh, across years, across um, uh, different people, uh, different areas of the country, all that stuff. Across time and space, a lot of things match. But that's in their sample size. When you start looking at things like, you know, I grabbed those off of Albert Rosales' site 
his humanoids uh, site before he uh, took it down and made it into books. But you start looking at the variety of them, and it's like it seems to be what the, the a lot of people are studying and saying that they all match is, is be, seems to be across the same culture at the same time. You don't get a report from the 1950s that matches what's now. You don't even get a report from the 1980s, I don't think, that would match what's going on now, which would seem to indicate to me that it goes in waves and it depends on the time and the, and the person and the culture and all that other stuff about what is perceived. That's why the and, group- that, and you know, to, to me, that indicates that, that uh, we're contributing a lot to it. Right. Uh, not that we're making it up. We're just trying to deal with cognitively dissonant input when weird happens. Address. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'd have that on the show. I think Josh, yeah. when you were on, we just said anytime something happened like that, it's where we're, you get the you get the strange like this doesn't make any sense, and it's just you know it just seems like that's what that person thinks at the time. Yeah, you just say Twitter dress because of the that that dress everybody said was blue and it wasn't blue, and other people said it was some other color, and um, it obviously was some color, but it depended on what people thought, what the what computer they were looking at, how their monitor was adjusted, all that stuff. That's why the grays yeah. were so convenient because now everything could be put into a little box. It was this one group of aliens that people were seeing that could almost say that, you know, they were the ones behind everything. And now you had just something to focus on. It wasn't all this like the myriad of strange stuff that was out there. Yeah, yeah. and people don't like that, you know. I, I like the weirdness. Go mm-hmm. ahead. I um I I'm always baffled, and I've, I've brought this up a couple of times, and I'm trying to get a real feel for it. Um, I'm always baffled that Communion gets all the rap for introducing the gray alien meme when, I mean, that, 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 uh, that image was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So I don't, I don't know why, why you know, Spielberg mm-hmm. always gets the uh, – it, it escapes the blame for putting that out there. I think he, that's probably the real uh, – like the uh, focal point for, for how that sort of in, 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 um, infiltrated culture. Yeah. Agreed. Very much. So. Yeah. And where did, where did Carlo, Carlo Rimbaldi get it from the person that designed them? I, I've, I, I'm sure there's a story behind that and I'm sure I've read it, but I can't remember where, you know, I think he based it on some reports, including probably Betty and Barney Hill and, and some others. Well, you know, and, and mundane to what we're talking about, there were some other designs that didn't make it to the final film either. Um, that's right. That's true. Actually, film some spindlier, taller entities too. Um, so yeah, I, I just that's something I just wanted to sort of seems like it was it's sort of relevant to what we're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Uh, guys, in that second story that uh, you relate in the book, and the story, the third one, by the way, is the one we talked about uh, about the uh, Polish guy with the uh, Emilchin. Yeah. The the. Jan Wolski in Emilchin, <laughs> Poland, 1978, I think. The, the aliens that looked like they were wearing wetsuits and apparently had an obsession with, with crows. Um, <laughs> but in that second story, paranormal things start to happen. And that's very often in a lot of these cases. And this gets ignored by the extraterrestrial and nuts and bolts people. Is, but in a lot of these cases, people start having poltergeist phenomenon. Which which goes back to your kind of psi phenomenon stuff that you were talking about in your essay, Josh. Uh, you, I want to talk to you guys both, and Greg, we don't we didn't get a chance to talk about this in Roswell, but I do understand that you are very interested in the ghost and poltergeist realm. 
Well, I am in, in, in the sense that, you know, one, it just flatters my, my interest in things that people don't think are, are real or that are weird or whatever. It's just my, it's just my whole, you know, it, it flatters my weird prejudice and it, I've been interested in it since I was a kid, but yeah, I mean, there's, there, there's a case to be made, a very strong case to be made for paraphysical and parapsychological stuff happening around, um, before and, and especially after a UFO sighting. Um, I just, or report. One thing I found really interesting, um, I think, uh, Valet, the, one of the few times I've ever met him, he mentioned this. He said, did you realize right before the um, Papua New Guinea Father Gill case, you know, with the guys on that little thing waving on that glowing platform or whatever? Right. Um, he said a few minutes before that, somebody, there was a knock on the door of the witnesses, like, building, and they went to the door and nobody was there. And then a few minutes later, somebody came running and said, come look outside. So there was a, a strange... Possibly, well, it could have been doorbell ditching too, but strange, possibly, you know, paranormal thing going on right before it. And nobody asked about those things. You know, the guy comes out there, the woman or whoever that's doing the, the ufologist doing the uh, uh, report and talking to the witness and taking it. They don't ask what happened beforehand. They don't ask what somebody was doing five minutes before, an hour before, or a month before. Um, and they don't come back later, you know, a, a week or a month later and say, you know, any, anything happened since that you think is out of the ordinary or, you know, find out if they've suddenly gotten a divorce or, you know, started a religion or whatever the hell. I mean, th these things are important to the to, to the cases, I think, and, and provide more insight than, you know, where 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 did the light come from? What direction did it go? What size were the aliens? And where do you think they came from? And, you know, how many how many how many. Uh, uh, how many hybrid children did you have by them? It's <laughs> a lot of these surrounding events oh. that have no connection whatsoever to the actual event itself are, I think are vitally important. Josh, you responsible yeah, I mean, to that? Yeah, no slow clap. That's all I have to say. <laughs> I know. I, I, I totally agree. Um, all right, Kitty, I'll see you. Oh. You know, I, I, I do wonder, <laughs> I do wonder sometimes if there isn't uh I mean, I, I feel like you hear people like Jeff Ritzman, which is somebody that I admire incredibly. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the takeaway that whenever I listen to Jeff is that these, these experiences tend to manifest around people who have anti-structural lifestyles and they thrive on liminality. And that's true. But every now and then I wonder – I wonder if the final answer or the final giant insight that we get, I wonder if that will be something that is applicable in every case, because it, the liminality anti-structural thing is applicable. And I would say the lion's share of cases, but I'm not sure if it's applicable to every case in terms of people's lives. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is, I don't know if we will ever be able to fully tease out what causes these things to center around people because I'm not sure that we will always know which data points are pertinent uh, to sort of generating this sort of experience in people. That makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does make sense. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, th that's the thing that's mo probably the most frustrating about this field is that there is not a single thing yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing. I'm writing my third book right now, and I'm constantly writing allegedly, you know, um, or or I'm, I'm constantly writing usually, often, <laughs> more often yeah, than you not. You can never say always. Yeah, 
always. Never. Yeah, yeah, and and, and you I, never say always. <laughs> I, I wonder if there is a phenomena like that to that extent. Any other sort of earthbound phenomena to that to that extent that that is that. Um, is that is that not impermanent, but is that sort of uh, capricious? I don't think that there is. I think that this the 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 uh, the capriciousness, lack of a better term. Um, I, I think that the I, I think that's sort of baked into this, and I think that you know I think that even if we do figure out quote unquote what it is, there's still going to be that uncertainty that's always at the heart of the phenomena. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it, it's it, nothing it, but uncertainty. Yeah. Until we figure out ourselves, I think that little uncertainty is always going to be there. And then when we figure out ourselves, then I guess we can live with the uncertainty rather than figure out what the uncertainty is, if that makes any sense. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, guys, real quick before I let you go, I watched the Stan Romanek documentary on Netflix. Extraordinary, the Stan Romanek story. Well, I did not find it very extraordinary which shows, I guess, how jaded I am. Any thoughts on him and possible fakery? I know there's fakery with him. I've, I've put up that pencil-throwing video a few Yeah, times. that's exactly, yeah. What I was about to, exactly what I was about to bring up. I haven't seen the documentary yet, though. See, I'll stick up for somebody like um, uh, Yuri Geller. Because yeah, people will say, well, he's, he fakes stuff, so that throws everything else into uh, uh, complete um, doubt. But uh, the fact that he was able to do some of these things in laboratory settings um, and over a period of years and with you know thousands and thousands thousands of people uh, reporting things that happen around him, I don't think they're all duped. I especially don't think every single lab that said there's something going on here was duped. Um, so in that case, it's, you know, I've, I, I will accept a lot of the fakery because he has been caught in fakery many times. Um, because if he can't produce, he just, you know, he, he, uh, resorts to, um, stage magic. Um, in Romanek's case though, I think that the fact that it, that's not the only time he's been caught doing something like that. Um, right. The the point is, if he's trying to make a case and people are trying to champion him as somebody that can be held up as some sort of uh, a beacon of of uh, proof to somebody outside the field or somebody that that doesn't agree with him, they're completely deluded. That's never going to happen. And I'm sorry that the UFO thing needs to be that way. But actually, actually, for any anything that you're trying to prove to other people, I you know somebody's going to pretty much have to be spotless. And I don't. One, I don't know if that's possible. And two, people like Romanek are way out of the, you know, way out of the running for that kind of thing. So I think, you know, if there is <laughs> yeah. anything going on with him, it's so polluted with his, with, uh, with his, uh, his hoaxing and his, I don't know if he's lied. I suppose he has, and his, and the the legal problems he's having, which I don't think are being, I don't think are have uh, been put on him by people that want to shut him up. Um, because he's hardly, like I said, he's hardly a beacon of, uh, of, of, uh, integrity. Um, all this, all this put together, I, I think makes it kind of useless to even pay attention to him. It's just, it's something that should be ignored by everybody in some sort of search for better understanding. Yeah. Uh, Josh. 
again, I mean, yeah, what he said, um, you know, it's, <laughs> there are certain, well, no, there are certain things that, and this is probably sounds like someone who isn't entirely intellectually honest, but this is just the way it is. There are certain things that I listen to a lot, or I hear a lot of stuff about, um, Roswell's one of those, um, MJ-12 is one of those. I've heard so much about them. But as far as retention of them, um, it's not something that I really, like, if you had asked me to give you a talk on Roswell and outline it all, I couldn't because um, I've heard, A, it's been done to death, and B, I've heard enough <laughs> yeah. theories that have, have convinced me of, of it going in a certain direction. So I kind of don't tend to retain a lot of this sort of stuff. It goes in one ear and out the other. And a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, of the Romanek stuff has been like that, you know, uh, for me as well. Yeah, I watched the documentary, and like I said, I wasn't impressed. Um, the supposed like best evidence that he had, um, where you know you have aliens looking into the windows. Oh yeah, that, you, that you know, piece of crap. I, I saw there's there's two of those, and I saw a whole bunch of realistic alien. Um, figurine statues in Roswell when I was there. Uh, I got you. Know, I have a picture with an alien. I should submit that. And then like, there's another one that was the, supposedly this girl peeking out from behind the fence or like his, the, like the, the fence of his deck. Right. Well, it looks like it's a cardboard cutout that he'd like stapled or taped to the deck. So you can't see that. I mean, it just it just looked really hokey, and then supposedly his best evidence, where he has this picture of his supposed hybrid daughter, that is uh, that he took outside, and and you have all these people saying, "Yeah, we saw the picture," but then he says, "Oh well, I walked down the hall. I was going to put it on my computer, and it uh, it erased itself." I'm like, "Come on, really?" <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. just it's it's not uh, it's the, it is not the best evidence for anything, and it should yeah. probably be not probably it should be ignored. Uh, it's just it, it's it's ridiculous and useless noise, and I, you know I'm I was about to say it. I'm sorry to say that I'm not really sorry to say it. It's just kind of it's it's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant to anybody that really is interested in this, and people really pr- people really like that kind of stuff because it's you know supposedly some sort of you know concrete evidence, but. Anything photographic or video, I don't think it's going to convince anybody anymore because it's so easily faked. And the, the other thing, and I think Josh has mentioned this and uh, before, a few other people have, the better something looks, the more fake it is. Mm-hmm. You know, if it, it, yeah. one, it yeah. looks good. And two, more importantly, exactly what you expect. If it's exactly what you expect, I can almost guarantee you it's faked. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that, that's an excellent point. Yeah, I, I always... I mean, it's gotten to the point where I don't even watch videos of things, alleged videos of things, because it's just, yeah. it's just, I, I, it, what, what's it going to do at the end of the day? Even if it's, even if it's legitimate, like it doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean a yeah, how many, damn thing. Yeah. yeah. How many times do I have to cry wolf? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, guys, thank you so much for this. Um, Greg, thank you so much for coming on at the last minute. Like I said, um, and to fill in for Robbie, what, uh, where can people get the book? Uh, Amazon, uh, White Crow Books, Barnes and Noble all have it um, for uh, uh, reframing the debate, and uh, it's it's gotten three or four um, nasty reviews, and 
uh, for the most part, it looks like, like two of them have actually read the book. The other ones haven't even looked at the book, and it's really obvious. But that's that's you know that's that was kind of expected when out of the gate when we when we all. Uh, talked about when the book was going to be released. We knew people weren't going to like it. But you know what? Who cares if people don't like it? And I, I haven't heard any totally legitimate arguments against it yet. Just kind of like, you know, what was one of the ones? Like, there's nothing to reframe, so this is a useless book. Yeah. <laughs> okay, whatever. I know I can or, I, I know I can ignore you now. Another one was um another one was uh someone who thought that Robbie was the author. So obviously uh, yes, I yeah, I answered that when I said, you you know, you should probably read the actual book before you put up a review, because obviously you haven't read it because you said, shame on this author. Wow. Like, you haven't even looked at it. It's There's, you know, how, how can you make it any more plain that you haven't even looked at the book before you reviewed it? So, you know, and that's a problem. That's a problem with what a lot of authors have. Yep. I had that with Project Beta. Why didn't you talk about this? It's like, I did. Here are the pages where I talked about it. Did you read the book? You know, that kind of stuff. But you know what? It's nobody's here for popularity contest or to try and convince anybody they're wrong or anything like that. It's like you know, I think the attitude of most people in the book is, "Here's something interesting. Please consider this. Um, if it's interesting to you, get in touch because we'd like to talk to you about it." Speaking of Project Beta, I'm going to get you on to to talk about that because I know how much you love to talk about it, Greg. <laughs> No, I just got tired of people asking me dumb questions about it. One guy called me up and started arguing with me about it before when he was asking me to be on the show. He goes, will you be on the show? It's like, yeah, sure. Then he started arguing with me about it before we even did the show. And I said, look, I got a tip for you. If you're going to argue with me about it, do it on the show. It'll make for a good show. Right now, you're just pissing me off and making me not want to be on the show. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's like, well, you know, I'll talk to you about it, but don't piss me off before the show. Piss me off during the show, and then more people will listen. Yeah. That is a a basic radio thing. (laughs) What kind of strategy is that, right? All right. The guy obviously hadn't been doing it for long. All right, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Um, Stay on the line for us. And, uh, Guys, we'll be right back to close the show on Conspiranormal. What if I were to tell you that the forms are not the facts? And what if I were to ask you the shape of water? Water is in a state of constant flow and flux, a paradox of weakness and strength. My name is Aaron David, and I am host of Charm the Water, a weekly podcast centering on the occult and mysticism based in Asheville, North Carolina. You can find us at charmthewater.com or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite pod feeder. Come holler. <laughs> All right, so we're back. Uh, once again, I want to thank Greg for jumping in there. It's always good to have him on and always good to have Josh on as well. It's nice. Yes, sir. Awesome to have them both on together. Yes, sir. But, uh, yeah, what you looking at there, Adam? Well, I am looking at nine ridiculous conspiracy theories about celebrity changelings. <laughs> yeah, you are. I sent it to you. So, you know, we've talked about Paul McCartney. Right. Which that one's got some validity for me. You think so? It's at least interesting enough to look into. It is interesting. The the ears thing is kind of weird. Right. Um, 
uh, I don't. We still need to do a whole show on that, right? Like that's there's there is so much material with the whole Paul is dead stuff. It's not even funny. I mean, you talk about one of the kind of like the first kind of like conspiracy theories. That's one of the most ultimate ones. But apparently, uh, Megan Fox has been replaced by multiple government clones and synthetics. <laughs> The theory, according to this strange forum, Fox is replaced once in a while with clones created by the government, and these are referred to by forum users as Fagan. What? Every time she looks different. Fake Megans? I guess. (laughs) Which could be easily explained by the process of aging or the fight against it. It's a new clone, say these theorists. All we can conclude is that the truth is out there. I don't know. This picture is pretty compelling, man. I don't know. Uh, Miley Cyrus, I, the imposter, Miley's old bottle double. Some seem to think Miley died of an overdose in 2010 or was killed by a corporation. <laughs> <laughs> the con- the consistent detail is that she, I wonder what corporation, possibly one that has a mouse as a logo. <laughs> the consistent detail is that she was subsequently replaced by her former body double. Theorists got really excited about this one because Miley used her bottled body devil to briefly stand in for her in concert once for about 30 seconds, starting two minutes and 15 in the clip below. This proves her body double could believably play her forever. But why? Yeah, Avril Lavigne. That's another one. Uh, the imposter, Avril's friend, Melissa Vandela. Not really sure. Avril died after the release of her first album, Let Go. She was replaced by the probably fictional Melissa Vandela, apparently a lookalike best friend of Avril's. Google says Avril is now 1.55 meters when the real Avril was 1.58 meters. According to her official website back in the day, so theorists think the 1.55 meter Avril must be Melissa. Supposedly, Melissa carried on Avril's career, But instead of being discreet about it, she started using darker lyrics that for some reason referenced the fact that the real Avril was dead. Under the Skin, the lookalike's first album, is said to be a hint that new Avril was living under the skin of old Avril. Profundity, thy name is Melissa. Apparently, Beyonce's dead, too. She got replaced. (laughs) Uh, Oh, it's a clone, though, for Beyonce. They cloned her. In 2000, the Illuminati can do anything. Well, yeah. So, I mean, the Illuminati. You know, we, know, we all know Jay-Z is the president or grandmaster of the Illuminati. In 2000, Beyonce's team took some stem cells from her body in case she died. In 2010, she died. <laughs> <laughs> now she's a clone, as evidenced by the below, by the below clip in which she's malfunctioning. Like, because... Clones malfunction, right? Because they're obviously robots. Maybe she's a replicant. There is a lot of fun videos of people malfunctioning on like YouTube. Yeah, and people that think that oh, that's proof that they're either you know reptilians or clones mm-hmm. or something. I just like watching the videos and watching famous people. We actually know someone <laughs> that had a video done by that. Um, that was Guy Malone. He had somebody say that he was a reptilian. Really? And they put a video out. Apparently, Britney Spears is a series of clones. Eminem is an Illuminati clone. Taylor Swift was replaced by Zena LaVey, the daughter of Anton LaVey. Ooh. 
Taylor Swift is a clone of renowned Satanist Zena LaVey. Pretty much what it says on the tin. Yes, ridiculous, but you've got to admit they look pretty similar. And they do, but... And uh, Katy Perry is John Benet Ramsey. Right, We, we know that, obviously. So, and my favorite, I'm going to say it again. Interesting thing there. Is that uh, uh, Alex Jones <laughs> is just Bill Hicks, and it's mm-hmm. a decades-long mm-hmm. joke. And I cannot wait <coughs> for the punchline. <coughs> I think that's probably true. You know, I doubted it at first, but <laughs> lately, <coughs> you never know. Um, <coughs> sorry, I need a cough button. What did you think of that, uh, the interview we did with Greg and with Josh? And, you know, we kind of had an interruption in the middle of it. Thank you, Comcast. Um, Calling you out, Comcast. <laughs> They're going to cut my internet off tonight. Right yeah, in the middle well, of Game of Thrones. A they've already of killed my, yeah, they're going to kill Game of Thrones now too. Thanks, yeah. Adam. Um, <laughs> no, it's interesting. I, I, it makes me really want to check out the rest of the book because, I mean, it, it is time to sort of take a new look at a lot of this stuff, you know, and and uh, like Greg's said to us before, not today, but, you know, it's kind of the, you got to kind of look at the tool, you know, which in our case is, is the human brain and kind of, look at how it works and how it operates and its shortcomings and its faults and add, add that into the whole equation as well. So, yeah, well, I look at, I really do think that there are some real entities out there that are making this happen. I think independent intelligences, I think, I don't think it's just all, all us. I think how we perceive it may be, completely different at completely different times as i've said before so there is that aspect as well um i think we're going to close the show because it's been this has been kind of a marathon day for me first of all <laughs> I, you know um just making a show happen today making a show miracle. happen was a miracle yeah it was kind of impossible um almost impossible um, we lost Robbie Graham this morning. Um, I mean, we will have him on the next episode, knock on wood. Uh, and then right in the middle of the interview, the internet went down. Uh, that was great. So yeah, just kind of making this show happen was, was, was almost impossible, but I hope you, everybody had a good, got something out of it at least. I think there's some good information there. Uh, We are going to continue next week talking about reframing the debate. And I think if anything was good out of what happened today is that we will possibly get two shows out of the next um, set of interviews that we're going to do. I have Robbie Graham coming on next time. Uh, We're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about some of the essays in the book, talk a little bit about his background and what he believes uh, is going on. And we're also going to be joined by Susan Demeter St. Clair, who uh, wrote an essay in the book. And hers is more dealing with kind of like the paranormal kind of aspects that's involved with the UFO phenomenon. Um, Also have scheduled uh, Ryan Sprague and Red Pill Junkie. So either we will do a whole long show or we will do two shows. I'm not quite sure yet what we'll do. I think we'll kind of see where we are at the end of next time. 
Um, does that work for you, Luke? Okay, that's what I thought. I think, he, I think Luke's good with it. He looks good. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he, he does. I mean, people are going to think he's like dead in my studio and then we just talk to him. Yeah, that's true. That. Yeah, he's like, he's like just <laughs> like a, he's just like a corpse in a, in a box in, in, in Rob's garage. <laughs> he looks so peaceful. He does look so peaceful. Well, we might reanimate him. <laughs> you know, he might be, you know, around next week. Just clone him. So he can, he can get a good nap while he's here and, you know. Things will be okay. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, we will be back next week on Conspiranormal. I'm melting. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.